Well, happy Sunday, everybody. We will be in two places today. We'll be in John chapter 5, and we'll also be in Daniel chapter 7. So we'll be uh, pulling in some very interesting things from the book of Daniel. Many people find perplexing, but today we will find it quite encouraging because of the great message that is there. And then we're going to see in the, in the Gospel of John how Jesus reached out to that imagery and pulled it in so we could make something, uh, it makes them more understand of who he is and what he's done. Um, question is, what did Jesus mean by calling himself Son of Man? Now, some would suggest, well, he was just speaking of his humanity. It's, it's part of the idea, well, he's son of God, but he's also man. And that, that parallels this idea that he was fully God and he's also fully man. But when we find the context in which he says son of man, that's not quite enough. That doesn't quite cover it enough. Because what we're going to see is when he mentions being son of man, he's mentioning himself doing things that are far beyond his mere humanity. Things associated with his divinity. And so we find him simply speaking of his humanity is not, not good enough to explain what he means by son of man. And then it, it gives something else too, by calling himself son of man and the other things that he mentions in the context of calling himself son of man, why was the Jewish leadership so upset? And why were they accusing him of calling himself equal with God? Because many people say today as they try to reinterpret the scriptures and what they're really trying to do is find a loophole. They're trying to find a way out. They're trying to find a way to, to put it away and discount it. What they're doing is they're saying Jesus didn't claim to really be divine. He didn't claim to be the Messiah. But here in the Gospels, the Jewish leadership continually accuses him of blasphemy and even plot to kill him by making himself equal with God. Now to put that in perspective, one of the problems we have in our world today is, is this idea of expertism and this, this false notion that human beings are evolving and progressing in their knowledge and in their abilities. And while we do have technologies that didn't exist years ago, there's no indication that we have any more intelligence than anyone's ever had in the past. And in fact, I could make some pretty strong arguments for the exact opposite. And I tell people, if you think people are smarter today than they were 2,000 years ago, you simply haven't read enough. You haven't read the people who lived 2,000 years ago, where you will struggle paragraph by paragraph to wrap your mind around what they're saying. But the ones who were there, the ones who knew the native language, the ones who had the oral tradition, the ones who were immersed in the culture that had gone on for hundreds of years, who were there and heard more words of Jesus than we have preserved in the Bible, were angered at what he said. And I rather think they were in a better position to judge what he was saying than some scholar sitting in a library 2,000 years later. And so we're going to investigate this a little bit today in John chapter 5. We're going to see what was it he said that got them so upset. How did he demonstrate this? And why does he call himself the Son of Man in the context of this controversy concerning his authority and his identity? Well, let's go to the text and then 
see for ourselves, as indeed we always should. We're going to begin in John chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. We're going to go through about verse 29. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in the Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. I'm curious about what that means. You need to come back tonight. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know that it was did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in a place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to ex execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this account that Jesus has given of himself, the evidence that he has borne witness to, the, the evidence of the works that he committed, of the things that he said, Lord, we thank you for these, and we ask you this day to use them to 
to encourage us, to strengthen our faith, to, to add to us those things which are necessary to glorify you in the work of the gospel. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to unite us together in the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today's point is, is very simply this, um, that Jesus, um, by referring to himself as the Son of Man, he draws on the rich imagery of Daniel 7 to describe his identity, his authority, and his mission. And we're going to begin by taking a look at this idea of him claiming equality with the Father, or at least being accused of claiming equality with the Father by the things he did, because that's going to set us up for what it means that he's the Son of Man. What is this authority that he's claiming to have? Now we've asked before, and we've talked about the fact, many people ask, did Jesus really claim to be the Messiah? And uh, is, he, is he claiming to be this long-awaited son of David, to be God himself? Well, here, yes, again, he is claiming equality with God. This is what the leadership understood him to be doing, claiming equality with God. That is, their God, Yahweh, the one and only covenant-making God of the Old Testament, who introduced himself as Yahweh, meaning I am and introduced himself as the self-existent one. Now look what it says in uh, chapter 5, verse 18 here. He says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I see in the passage five ways in which he is claiming this level of authority, this equality with God. And the first of them is generally in authority. And this is implied by the whole passage, and it kind of comes to a head in chapter 9 when he heals once again on the Sabbath and he speaks of his authority in this way. In his decision to heal upon the Sabbath, he is claiming to be sovereign over the Sabbath. He's claiming to be one who can make that kind of a decision who can say, yeah, we're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And by the way, the Old Testament even mentions healing as one of the things to not do on the Sabbath. But he is claiming to be above that by saying, well, I'm going to heal on the Sabbath if I want to. He claims that authority. He also claims to have equal work with the Father. In verse 17, he says, look, the Father's been working until now, and I am working. In other words, he's continuing the work of the Father. And yes, the Father rested on the seventh day. But did he really? Because the Bible tells us that not only did he speak everything into existence, but uh, it's in Christ that he upholds everything by the word of his power. It's a continuing act of creation. It wasn't a one-off. He didn't make creation and spin it off and let it go under its own power. It is sustained by God. So why this whole seventh day? Why does it say he rested on the seventh day? Well, it says so because he was setting us an example and he was teaching us things concerning that. We don't have time to go into all those right now, but he is saying the Father has been working and I am working. A present continuous kind of sense. Not that I have one task to do. 
Not that I did this one healing, but that I am working. So the implication is he's continuing this work of God. He says in, in verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but whatever he sees the father doing. So whatever he sees the father doing, he is doing. That carries another implication with it of his position because, you know, how many things have you seen God do and how many of those things can you actually imitate? Well, a human being, we know, cannot do all the things that God can do. But very clearly, Jesus is saying, whatever I see him doing, that's what I'm doing. And so he is, is claiming equality with God in the work that he does. He claims equality with God in the life that he brings. And this indeed is a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. It's all through this passage. If you search the, the word life through the Gospel of John, you're going to find it occurring a great number of times. And in fact, it's part of John's thesis at the end of the book when he gives his purpose for writing the book. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing have life in his name. And so this is about life. And Jesus is claiming, I've got that life in me. Just like the Father has it, so I have it and I give it to whom I will. And he reiterates this in verse 24 and in verse 25 and in verse 26 and in verses 28 through 29, finally concluding that there'll come a time when all will hear his voice, all will have a resurrection and come out of the tombs, and some of those are going to go to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt judgment. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this very strong, very simple, very plain assumption, a belief all across the Old Testament that God is the one who has our lives in his hand. He is the one that brings us forth from the womb. He is the one who assigns the day of our demise. And this is simple Old Testament foundational truth. So he claims to have this equality in life. He also claims to have this equality in judgment. And this is profoundly important. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And if you had to name the top five themes of the Old Testament, after reviewing the Old Testament, reading it, doing word counts, how many things occur, how many times, and what themes run throughout it, judgment has to be one of them. And the judgment of God is spoken about a great deal in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, that's why some people don't like reading it, particularly the prophets. But Jesus said, no, that's, that's all in me. The Father's given it all over to me. And at the end of things, everyone will hear my voice. They'll be resurrected and some will go to everlasting judgment and some to everlasting life. And the difference is what I think about them. So he's claiming this equality in judgment. And so it's not just that he called God Father. It's that he piles all this on. And his disciples had to be thinking, are, are the leaders not angry enough that he's got to keep going? Jesus, please stop. They're angry that you called God Father, and now you're claiming the judgment. You're claiming the life. You're claiming all the work of God. And he also claims something profound and important. 
and this would be such an offense to them. And I want you to try just for a moment to get your head around the offense that he is giving to the Jewish leadership. Because they were the literate ones who understood, supposedly, the scriptures. They interpreted the rules. They made more rules around the rules so we wouldn't come near to breaking the rules. And they were the ones who literally had judgment over their people as to whether or not they broke the rules. You notice they confront this man. Hey, you're carrying your bed. What are you, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. Do you understand that's so profoundly foreign to our society? Whereas we're driving to church on Sunday and we're passing by a grocery store or something and we notice there's cars in the parking lot. And we pull in there and we storm in the door. What are you doing with your store open? It is a Sunday. That would be unheard of. It'd be laughed at. But this was ingrained in their culture. These men could call someone out. You're a Jew. You claim to be a Jew. And yet here you are doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to paint that as entirely bad because, frankly, I think we've swung the pendulum way too far the other way where we let someone run around claiming to be a Christian and live every manner of life and never call them out on it. And as much as I would hate how often I would have to be called out, I think maybe we ought to do just a little more of that. But try not to be Pharisees. So he puts himself above them by saying, I'm the one who has all judgment. This was personal to them. And then he comes along and he, and he claims he is the one worthy of honor. In verse 23, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. See, the leaders, the members of the council, the Pharisees and the scribes, these people, they were honored. That was like a, a societal rank that they held that the common person who was not those things would share them special honor by how they addressed them, by how they acted around them, by not presuming to, to speak first around them necessarily. And he's saying, no, 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 you're going to honor the son in the same way you honor the father Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What does that say about the various world religions that claim, oh yeah, I believe in God, I just don't follow Jesus, I don't really think Jesus was the thing. Can they honor God without honoring the Son? Well, John's understanding it by relating these words of Jesus by some things he writes in his letter of 1 John would be clearly, no, you cannot. You cannot honor God in any way without the Lord Jesus Christ involved. Do you now understand the magnitude of what Jesus has just said to these people? That he has claimed this equality with God in, in honor and in judgment and in life and in work and in his general authority. Now, the fascinating thing about it is we look at these last two verses that we talked about here, 27, 28 to 29. 
There are two things in this passage that point us to Daniel chapter 7. The first is his use of the title Son of Man, as he calls himself Son of Man in verse 27. The second is that following right up with this mention of himself as the Son of Man, he alludes to Daniel chapter 12, which we read at the beginning of our worship today. And let me read this for you again in Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. In a single verse, Daniel is declaring, number one, there's life after death. Number two, there's universal resurrection. And number three, after that resurrection, you're either going to go to everlasting life or everlasting shame and contempt. And Jesus is clearly pointing his listeners and his later readers to the book of Daniel. And then specifically by saying son of man carries us back to Daniel chapter 7. Where he talks about being the son of man. The son of man is Jesus' preferred term for himself throughout the gospels. He says that of himself more than any of the other titles. And when you go to try to figure out the context, why is he saying son of man? Well, you'll find son of man in a couple places in the Old Testament. One place you'll find it the most frequent is in the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet uses it to speak of himself. It's how God addresses the prophet Ezekiel. And so some would argue, oh, see, there's the phrase, and it's just speaking of Ezekiel, who's just a man. So Jesus is just claiming to be a man. Oh, except for the equality with God by having his authority and his honor and his life-giving work and his, his power and all that. Other than that, he's maybe just saying he's man. Or he's pointing us to the book of Daniel, which his quote, following son of man, clearly shows us that's what he has in mind. And in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look down specifically at verses 13 and 14. Where is this, this phrase? It's in verse 13. There came one like a son of man presented before the ancient of days. But before we get to that, you know, what's the, what's the context here? When we read Daniel chapter 7, it's one of these what we call apocryphal passages in which, you know, brilliant and, and impactful and exciting imagery is used to explain something profoundly important. And in Daniel chapter 7, we're presented with four different beasts. And toward the end of the chapter, it's interpreted for us. We know what these represent. They represent four different kings or their empires. And in order, they are presented to us as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome which came over the land around Israel and everything in that order. And so it's speaking of these empires, the fourth one, the Roman Empire, being much worse than the others, having ten horns, and, and another horn comes up, plucking three of them out, this other one comes up, and it's speaking great blasphemous things. And Daniel's reaction to these things is, you know, this is, a vision he's given, his reaction to these things is, is quite visceral, quite intense. And his natural question would be, what are you going to do about these things, Lord? Well, there's a council meeting. Verses 9 and 10, is, his vision continues, and it says, 
as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Okay, well, who was who that? Well, that's, that's God, right? If you're reading the Old Testament, you see some other imagery, you've read a few Psalms, you realize this is clearly talking about God. It goes into verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So what's going to happen here? Well, it goes on. Daniel says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. See, the horn is speaking great blasphemies. He's having this vision. He's a godly person. He loves God, and he has laws. And, and in the laws that God gave the Israelites, someone speaking blasphemies, that's just unheard of. That's a death sentence. And he's hearing this little horn, and he doesn't quote what it says, probably because he didn't want to, but led by the Spirit, he doesn't quote what it says, but it's great blasphemies. It's saying things against God. And he's like, you can't let him say that. Have you, ever, have you ever been watching something, and maybe it's a debate, maybe it's a, you know, somebody saying something about religion, about your faith, about Christ or something, and it's just wrong. Does something inside you just boil and seethe? Does something inside you say they can't be allowed to say that because they are so wrong? I hope so, honestly. I hope it bothers you because we should not permit that kind of thing. You're saying, what, we ought to make that the laws? I'm just saying, no, don't permit it in ourselves and don't let it go unchallenged in people around us. Why? Because of the millstone principle. You aware of the millstone principle? I believe it was mentioned in Sunday school this morning. The idea that should you lead someone astray by claiming to teach about God, but teaching them something that's wrong about God, that's the context in which it comes. He's challenging the teachers and the teachers are wrong. And he's saying to them, you know, if you should lead someone astray, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen a millstone lately. If you go to some of those reenactment places and historical houses and things like that, you'll occasionally see them, and it's a large stone like this made for grinding grain. It's large because grain is hard to grind. So it's very heavy. And the nice thing is they generally had a hole right in the middle of them, which would make it convenient for tying a rope around it. And he said, you ought to have a millstone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea rather than lead someone astray concerning the things of God. And so Daniel is upset about what this little horn is saying. It is saying false things about God. You know, what's going to be done about this? And in verse 11, he says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I look, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. 
So these great and terrible beasts are presented and a description given of them and how awful they are. And many people have tried in artist depictions, what would this look like that Daniel is seeing here? And they're terrifying images that, that has been presented here. And then with hardly a word, it's killed. And it's body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, that is the ones that came prior, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Till such time as a judgment. Well, who did this would be the next question. Who killed the beast? Who put an end to this blasphemy that was going on? Who put an end to this beast? And when you think of beasts in the Bible, what you want to be thinking about is you don't want to be thinking of literal beasts. That is given to us so we understand the ferocity of what we're talking about, the danger of it, the ugliness of it. What you should be thinking about is those world systems that oppress, that wage war, that cause great death and destruction upon the earth, that foment and blasphemies about the Lord that spread false religions. And this has just been destroyed. What destroyed it? Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. So the vision continues. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, I want you to picture the scene. The scene was established a few verses ago where there's a throne, a great throne, someone with hair like, like wool on it, the ancient of days, he's called, and he is, he is on the throne, and a great council is gathered around him, and thousands upon thousands, really millions is what it's saying, of angelic beings are serving him. And then one comes on the clouds, like the Son of Man, and he's presented before the Ancient of Days. Now here we have a great problem. Now notice he says, one like a Son of Man. That means his appearance is somewhat humanish. And there's a great problem here because some of the descriptions of him coming with the clouds of heaven and being given dominion, glory, and a kingdom those are things spoken of elsewhere only, exclusively, of Yahweh. Of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now the Jewish scholars have a, a problem here and they look in Daniel chapter 7 and to this day are very perplexed by it because they have a problem. There's a Yahweh on the throne. There's a Yahweh that's presented to them. And they say, we can't, we can't figure this out. Sure, surely there's not two gods. And we know there's not two gods. There's one God, but he presents and he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's the Father and the Son. Take Daniel 7. Challenge your friends who believe in, in a oneness kind of theology. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe, oh yeah, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The Father and the Son, they're the same and all that. They have major, major problems. And one of them is this scene, this vision given to Daniel. Why would God lead Daniel astray that there's two different persons involved in being Yahweh? 
Well, this says, uh, the idea of the Son of Man says three things, really, about Jesus. It says many more, but these are three that I've selected and, and that I've put in your notes here. And it's very simply this, that uh, there is uh, salvation involved, that there's suffering and vindication involved, that there's exaltation involved, him being put above everything else. So the Son of Man is the one who brings salvation from the enemies of the people uh, and the enemies of God. And we saw that in Daniel chapter 7 as we were uh, taking a look at what he does. He is the one that destroys the beast. And then to him is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so there's this salvation that he brings that is very important. And later in Daniel chapter 7, verses 21-22, see the horn was making war with the saints, had prevailed over the saints, and as indeed Rome prevailed over Israel. And as indeed the nations of the world as, as many descended from Rome as beasts of their own kind, still continue to try to persecute the church. But look, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. That eventually this is going to be turned over, and it all hinges on this one that's presented before the Lord, this one who rides the clouds, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that is this one who's presented, this one like a son of man, shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. But what's that have to do with our gospel? Well, our gospel simply says this. When Jesus mentions himself as a son of man in the, the Gospel of John, he says to Nicodemus in, in chapter 3, John chapter 3, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, crucified, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So there's this, this suffering is Jesus works it in here. He adds that to the Son of Man imagery. He brings in this idea of the suffering, but with it is also then this great vindication after the suffering. Let's take a look in chapter 12 as he talks about it here. Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, Jesus is saying very clearly, I'm going to die. He's using imagery to say it. It's clear. It says, I'm going to die, but that death is going to bring much fruit. And this perplexed the people. They're like, why is he talking like this? Why is he saying these things? You know, in fact, in verse 31 down here, the, the crowd, and he says this in the midst of a crowd, um, they say, you know, who is this that, that does this? And, and he says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he was talking about the death here. And then they say down here in verse uh, uh, 34, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
Who is the Son of Man? In other words, we're not understanding this because we thought Christ, we thought the Messiah would come and just stay. We mean he's going to die. And Jesus says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. So he's very clearly saying this of himself. Jesus says to the leaders in John chapter 8 as they're challenging him, and it crescendos this challenge that he's constantly receiving. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He's saying, it's, it's when I'm lifted up, when I'm crucified, you're all of a sudden going to know that it's me. So eventually then, the Son of Man is going to be exalted above all other things. As we saw back there in Daniel, he's given all kingdom, all dominion over all the kingdoms, in fact. And this goes along with what Jesus said. It's in John chapter 5, verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment, that the, the Father has given him all authority. In John six sixty two, he says, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And the disciples did see him ascend to where he was before in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is glorified. This is what he says in John chapter 12. They, they took branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, where they're praising him as king. And then later in that same week, he's teaching these things about himself. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he connects the crucifixion with his glory in this way. In chapter 13, as he's teaching now only his disciples on the night that he's arrested to be taken, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And then finally, he ascends to heaven, as we see in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is about to be killed for preaching the gospel by some of the same people that crucified Jesus. And Stephen is given a vision of God into heaven. And where is Jesus? He is standing at the right hand of God. You've heard the expression, my right hand man. It goes way back. That expression is thousands of years old. And that's exactly what it means here. God's right hand. If that's not enough, we know that John is also the one who was given the revelation. The book we know is Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, listen to these, this description here and see if this sounds familiar to you. As he's given a vision of Christ in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And you might be saying, wait a minute, that's not exactly what it said in Daniel. No. What the book of Revelation does is it takes the image of the one who's on the throne and the image of the one who comes in the clouds and mixes it up a little bit. What's it saying to us then? God is one, as we know. And the Son 
is equal with the Father. In Revelation chapter 14, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. See, he's shown as being having dominion. He's shown as having judgment with the sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And we say, I'm afraid to read the book of Revelation. It's just too scary. It's just too much. Well, let me ask you a question. Why? What's wrong with what we're presented with? as the Lord Jesus being the Son of Man. Because what it means that he's the Son of Man means that there is one appointed, one who is eternal, who already exists, who has already demonstrated his power in sustaining creation and everything being created through him in coming here and taking the form of a man, being tempted in every way, even more than we are, never having sinned, proving himself by his power to perform great miracles, even to raise the dead claiming and proclaiming who he is in ways that may not be clear upon a cursory reading of the scriptures, but as we dig in and we begin to understand the scriptures, we understand he made profound and clear claims about who he is, and he has proven it by his works. And he's going to set all things right. See, the end of the story is that all sickness and all death and all sin, all persecution and oppression and violence and danger and suffering is done away with once and for all. And is that not the inner craving of every human soul? Even ourselves. Because so often we think about, well, how nice things would be if there weren't so much crime and everything else. Yeah, but, but what if you were in control? What, what, if, what if your own desires accorded with that of God and you didn't have temptations anymore and you didn't go astray and you didn't have to fight yourself to do what ought to be done in your life? What if your mind could be conformed to the mind of God? to desire the things he desires, and to be empowered to accomplish those things as we are. So there's very little we can count on in the world today, but as certain as Jesus came, and as certain as he made great claims, with that great and perfect certainty, which ought to be absolute certainty among his people, as the Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God, and the Spirit testifies with us about the truth of the Scriptures as we read it. We say, Amen, and truly, this is true. With that certainty, we know He will return. And He will accomplish all of these things. He comes to judge. And it is time 
to choose sides. And it is time for God's people to push this issue more and more, to spread the gospel of truth, to challenge the world as Jesus did, because we indeed are his body, and we have been granted the role of ambassadors for him, which we continue to express his will in the earth today. And so we should go forth commanding people to repent that this hour is coming when he will come to judge, he will judge by the books, make sure that you're in that book. It is time to choose sides. And there is no putting it off, and there is no just skating along and thinking, okay, I'll wait until things are close to the end, when things are really bad, and then I'll repent. If you don't repent today, you have no reason to believe you'll repent tomorrow or 10 days from now or when the world falls apart even more than it is. One of my favorite non-Christian bands is called Rush. They have an interesting little song called Free Will. And it says, and it's not about what you think it's about, but one of the things they say in it is if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. That is, if you decide, I'm going to put off this Jesus thing, I'll wait to get baptized, I'll wait to join a church, I'll wait to really start to follow him, to try to work on these problems I got and the sins, and, and I'll wait to really give my life over to him and come out for Jesus. I'm, I'm going to wait. Do you realize that's a choice for destruction? Because we don't know if maybe he comes back tonight. Maybe he comes back at the end of the sermon. Some of you are saying, I hope so. Or whether he comes back in 100 years, we just don't know. And we don't know what will happen with ourselves. Therefore, now is the time to choose side and choose the victor and choose this one who comes on the clouds with great glory. He is above all things. Let's pray. Father God, you have presented us with images of Christ which show him as always above and always greater and having every bit of authority and power of the Father. You have challenged us with scriptures today that demand a response. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us be granted the faith to, to respond in the way that we need, wherever we are in our faith, whether we have no faith at all, whether we have great faith but need to go further. Lord, I pray that you'll increase our faith that we may respond rightly to your call. I pray, Lord, this day that, that you cause us to have a great desire to search these things in the Scripture and to understand more so that, Lord, the full weight of it may press upon us and drive us to, to in gratitude, serve you. Thank you, Lord, for this role of ambassadorship to the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would take it up and that we would pursue you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.